Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Stage, film, and television actor Bruce McGill first came to fame as the motorcycle-riding bad boy character D-Day in National Lampoon's Animal House. McGill's rugged looks led to more tough guy roles, but also to a wide range of everything from Shakespeare to voice acting on Family Guy to long runs on MacGyver, Shades of Blue, and Rizzoli and Isles. Bruce McGill is an accomplished musician and golfer as well, and has used these skills to enhance or influence his take on multiple characters through the years, most notably playing golf great Walter Hagen in the film The Legend of Badger Vance. Bruce and I met on Crystal Symphony on a Hollywood-themed cruise, where I was to play a concert and Bruce to lecture about his long film career. One thing led to another, and the following conversation was recorded in June 2019. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I was looking forward to this, especially because you are a musician, and I've been fascinated with... I've always been fascinated with the musicality of language, of the spoken word. And for me, the great writers, the great actors, people who understand rhythm, space, all of that. It's not just those words. And I wondered for you if you think it might be an advantage that you are a musician. Without a doubt, it's an advantage because you are, you know, in the movies, less so because you have technicians that are dealing with sound. But on the stage where I started, that's all you have. You have your voice, you have empty space, you have an audience. They have ears. They have interest. They're sitting in the seats facing the right direction. They've done their job, basically. Then it's up to you to captivate them, if possible, at least to not bore them. <laughs> and, and colorful musical delivery of lines where you use all of your vocal range is, goes a long way to that. A great example of the speech I was doing when you were setting levels, which is the first chorus to Henry V by Shakespeare. Oh, for a muse of fire that will ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then he talks about famine, the, the dogs of war. You've heard the, the phrase of dogs of war? He's talking about Henry V, the great warrior king. And at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. Now when you say that, the dogs of war are these hounds that he's referring to. And famine, pinches, hunger pinches. So you say the word famine in a pinched way, famine. Swords flash in the air. The sun kicks off of a steel sword. So sword, the word goes up. Famine. Sword and fire consumes. It burns. It runs. So you hiss the word fire. So just just something like that. And you're, you know, the, I won't say it's infinite, but there are dozens of ways to say every single word in a, in a really well, has to be well-written material to sustain it. And Shakespeare, of course, a lot of what he wrote was poetry. And so there's meter and measured rhythms. And you can work with them, you can work against them, depending on, you know, how modern you want your performance to be. But the musicality of the language is key in keeping long passages, soliloquies, for example, in Shakespeare, interesting and varied. It's like changing tempo, changing pitch. You know, it is music. It's mm. basically music, only the instrument is the voice. It's not a piano, in your case, or a guitar, or a baritone ukulele, in my case. 
As you're saying this, I'm thinking about the improvisational aspect of jazz, and I know what a big jazz fan you are. And people don't think about it with actors as much because they think they're doing exactly what's on the page. But to me, the improvisation is with all the things you're talking about, the space, the reaction to the person you're acting with, all the things that jazz musicians do. Well, we refer to, I refer to it anyway, being, having a musical background. I refer to the playing of a scene. I mean, everyone is slightly different, whether a director tells you to change it or not. If you're paying attention to the other person in the scene or persons in the scene, something will change. And if you're paying close attention and big ears, remember we had the conversation about big ears, you'll catch it. And but, Because if you don't, you're off the road because that's going to be in there. You know, in the theater anyway, it's all in there because there's no editing. Everybody's on stage at once. In the movies, they do what we call coverage, which is the camera's over me to you, over you to me. Then there's one out there shooting a master. So you don't know yet which piece of film the editor is going to put in the final cut. So you don't really have the control that you have on stage. But if you're not paying really, really, really close attention to the other actors, you're missing a bet because great choices for you and an instant, immediate, vital, alive choices come from the other actors. And I had a great, great acting teacher. She was Polish, named Jagazich. And a P- Polish, born in Poland, was a little girl when Hitler rode down the streets. And she said she never forgot that voice, another thing, voice sound. But we were talking about uh, ensemble acting, which is working with the other actors, not just being the star alone. It's very true in music as well. And... Uh, she said this great, in her broken English, she said this great thing about ensemble acting. As more you helps him, it more helps you. <laughs> and I never lost that, and I think of it all the time. Yeah. And I have to work sometimes with actors, and sometimes they're the star of the show, that they're, they're not prepared. They don't have their chops, to use another musical term. Mm-hmm. And whether it's their workload is too hard or they've gotten old and memorization is too difficult, because, you know, in these big productions I do, somebody got paid a lot to write these words, and they'd rather like you to say those words they wrote <laughs> than make up some boop, boop, you know, that's right. not what they no, wrote. No, absolutely. And, uh, and if they're struggling with the lines, they're not paying attention to me and or, or the other, the actress in the scene or anyone else in the scene. They're struggling with what they're supposed to say. Right. So they can't look out. They can't have big ears to what's going on in the scene with them. And so they can't get give anything but a self-involved, angry, boring performance. Mm. And I just, I hate it. Well, I hate it gives it. you nothing to work with. <clears throat> if I ever, people ask all the time, do you teach? And I don't, I, I you know, it's like, why well, I don't direct because I don't have to. <laughs> I, Great. But I would teach mostly, you know, don't even come into my class if you haven't prepared. Because mm. we're going to be talking about stuff way after you learned your words. What's basic? The lines. You have to know the lines. Well, that's how I feel about music. We all talk about that we have in the big complaint with jazz musicians is about, quote, jazz singers. And they want to scat sing, they want to improvise off the line, they want to do all these things, and they won't even have good intonation. And to us, that's the basic thing. Absolutely, the basic. Know the melody and be in tune. (laughs) You know, scat singing especially, there's freedom in it. But Another thing I've learned about, I hate the word art, but remember art is just short for artificial. Mm-hmm. It isn't existing in nature. The mm-hmm. word art comes from artificial. You know, when I'm playing the guy in this movie or that movie, I'm not really that guy. Audience knows that. I know that. But in art, the only way you can be really free 
is to know exactly your boundaries. Because if you don't exactly know your boundaries, you're wondering about your boundaries. If you know 100% your boundaries, you can fly like an eagle. You don't get to instruct anything around here. This is not North Carolina, not South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi's proceeding. Wipe that smirk off your face! Dr. Wagland's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony whether the hell you like it or not. My guest, Bruce McGill, as lawyer Ron Motley from the film The Insider, answering a tobacco lawyer who objects to his cross-examination of Russell Crowe's character, who is the insider of the movie's title. Bruce McGill and I met on the Elegant Crystal Symphony, where we were both part of a movie-themed cruise around Alaska, and I discovered Bruce is a jazz fan and musician himself. Bruce grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and still feels Texas in his bones. Here's a bit of Count Basie and his orchestra on Texas Shuffle. Talk about growing up in Texas and what that gave you. I everybody knows well, <laughs> about people that are, you know they grow up. They think everyone grows up in Hollywood, but I'm curious about the music that was around you. I'm a big fan of Western swing. The listeners of ooh, this show ooh, know Bob I bring Wills, that up all the time. Oh, that's good stuff, man. That it's is good stuff. stuff. And these guys have chops like Asleep at the Wheel. Now they're right in that wheelhouse and really good. 
catfish, mammy's good gumbo. I got the rambling fever, said goodbye to Ma and Pa. Cross that old red river, this is what I saw. I saw miles and miles of Texas, all the stars up in the sky. I saw miles and miles of Texas, gonna live here till I die. Into Austin, the cradle of the West. I just ask any cowboy to tell you it's the best. I met a Texas beauty, I got friendly with her paw. I looked into her big blue eyes, and this is what I saw. I saw miles and miles of Texas, all the stars up in the sky. I saw miles and miles. My guest is actor Bruce McGill. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Well, growing up in Texas, uh, I wasn't an actor until I was, oh God, I must have been 11, when I finally started actually doing a, a formal play that somebody wrote in front of an audience. Mm. I was always cutting up in school and getting sent to the principal's office, because, you know, you give a guy who's going to be an actor eventually a captive audience of 30 kids, peers at that, the cat's going to cut up. And the teacher can either handle it or she pushes that button. I'm sending Bruce McGill to the office. He's uh, incorrigible. I was in the but, office a lot, too. Bruce. Hey, you know, it wasn't bad. I got to know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I started there playing the piano. I was very young, and there was a piano in our house. And I still wonder. I don't remember what made me want to play that thing so much that I begged, begged at age five or six for piano lessons. I'm, I'm imagining that somebody came over one night because nobody in the family played it. And it was a, a, a old upright that had been in the Galveston flood of 1903 floating around. And somebody rescued it. 
Wow. And, 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 uh, and anyway, it was a, not a great piano, but it was a piano. And I bet that somebody came over and sat down and played it, and everyone went, oh, that's great. And I thought, I want to be able to do that so people can go, oh, that's great. Because I... And this plays into, you know, maybe why I became an actor, but I have, if I have a personality flaw, it's too eager to please. I'm too eager to please, and that, that sometimes makes me shortcut performances. I oh, should, that's I should interesting. Be, yeah, I mean, I, In what I should, regard? What do you mean? Well, I, I want the director or certainly the audience, but I want them to like what I'm doing. And sometimes uh, in order for them to like the whole thing on a deeper level, I need to give up some stuff early on. It's restraint. It's about restraint. And I don't really think it's a bad character flaw to be eager to please. But if you're so eager to please that you bend over so far that you're not your authentic self, Mm. it it can be a little inauthentic. I would think that'd be tricky for people in performance anyway, as you're saying it. I'm wondering if all of us in in the performing arts... On some level, are people who want to please? Yeah, what are you singing? Please like me, please like me more. <laughs> now like me a lot. Oh, like me, like uh, me. So I guess there's that, but I don't really think I've, it's not an issue for me now. It's just something that I think about. And anyway, that I'm talking about why would I have started in Texas, which was where you're supposed to play football or sports or, or kill a deer, or yeah, stuff like that. And you're that kind of guy. You look, yeah, yeah. you look like uh, you're yeah. central casting well, Texas, baby. Listen, I had to have. Uh, some thick skin, and when the thick skin failed, I had to be able to fight. Literally, and I'm, you know, I, I, I played the piano, and I, nobody would take me because I had these are stubby now, but they were. You should have seen them when I was six. And uh, they, finally, one woman said, "All right, I'll teach him." And her name was Margaret Biebinger. I'll never forget it. And when I was six, I started piano lessons. Cut to a few years forward, I was always narrating things at church because I could read well and I could, you know, I was a good reader. And then I was um, in the choir at church and the choir at uh, the elementary school. And one time in my, I guess the fifth grade, maybe the sixth grade, the choir director was directing this operetta, Johnny Appleseed. And Johnny Appleseed got bad grades and his mother pulled him from his extracurricular activities. Mm. So Fred C. Vine, I can still see his name on the libretto, was jerked out of the production. And poor Miss Lothringer, her name was Marianne Lothringer. And she said, you're going to be Johnny Appleseed. And this is before rebellious Vietnam era. And a teacher was an authority figure to me, just like my parents. So she said, you're going to be Johnny Appleseed. And I said, okay. And I had like 10 or 12 days to learn all the songs. And, you know, it was a good part. Johnny Appleseed in Johnny Appleseed. That's a part, man. So I did that. And uh, to great success in the in the room that I like to call the Cafeliba Gematorium in these elementary schools, <laughs> we all had uh, public them. schools. Yeah. There's a cafeteria line at one end. There's a stage at the other end, and there's crank down basketball. I just put the extra syllable for the library. We actually had a separate room for a library. But Cafeliba Gematorium is funny. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so I did that, and I went, "Wow, they like this." The people were very. Any kid, I think, uh, that's on a pretty good path is looking for positive reinforcement. Most of the kids around me got it through sports. At, you know, I'm talking age 10, 11, pre-puberty. Mm-hmm. And some kids were faster and, you know, some kids were taller. And uh, some kids could sing and, and act. Mm. But in Texas, in the 50s, it was a two-edged sword. If, you're, if you look like, you know, you could play football, you should be playing football. And they would call us, they would call us, this is so politically incorrect now, but what they would call me now past puberty in high school was drama queer. Yeah. And that's what they would call me. And, and I, would, I would invite them out. 
sometimes if it got if it got past my thinner than skin and uh you know what you only have to whip a couple of those big boys before the rest of them gain a leave little respect they leave you alone and then the and then the next thing that happens is uh you go, you move on along and suddenly you're in animal house and they all pretend that you were their best friend in high school you have that happen to you too oh gosh <laughs> i'm always fascinated and you can explain this to me bruce because i'm glad we had this meeting doctor uh, <laughs> That I have been fascinated with that myself in my career because there were people who weren't good to me. I've had lovely people oh, who were very too. supportive, but the ones like you're talking about that, that weren't. And then years later that I've had success and they come up and they, they act as if we're best friends. And I'm curious why they don't remember. And, not, and I don't hone in on these things. I, right. I'm not bitter. I don't do it. But I remember... That's a person I don't want to be with because they were not kind people. Right. And they completely seem to forget that they treated. Do you know the term revisionist history? Yeah. Do they just do it? They just don't. Yes. Well, in my case, it's weird because they've been watching me as I age. I mean, Mm -hmm. I see them and I don't, they don't look like the person they were when we were 16. So I don't even know who they are. You don't even remember. I don't remember. Yeah. So that's But I know who my friends were then. I mean, those I still run into and see. But there's a whole lot of people and some it's more obnoxious than others. The ones that assume an intimacy that wasn't there. Right. That's uh, what I'm asking. It's irritating, but there's no, that's, you know, you pick your battles. Yeah. They're just not not even thinking about it. They just, just, well, you know, the one that killed it was Animal House because everybody wanted to know D-Day from Animal House. The, the irreverent, horrible, racist, misogynist, funny mm. movie from 1978. So that was interesting. And growing up in Texas, there's a kind of pressure cooker. If you're going to do it and you're going to keep doing it in spite of the guys that want to beat you up because you're a, a drama queer mm-hmm. or or that you're not out for the football team and you should be, and they're pretty abusive, it's a pressure cooker and it, and it, it firms your resolve. What stands out to me with that is the competition and not looking at that as a bad thing. No, it's, good thing. it's great preparation. I know I went to a very big high school in Southern California, right. so I was already in a big pond. Yeah. So I, I, I looked really at the useful. world that way. It was very useful because I knew nothing would be easy. I knew there'd always be a lot of people going for whatever I was going to choose to go for. And that's what yeah. I'm getting from you, this competitive attitude that firmed your resolve because a lot of people don't think they'll think oh that person was lucky or it was this or it was that <laughs> but it is the the environment you grow up in what the opportunities are there and your resolve to take them your awareness your dedication your drive all those things but it's still the environment that's it's one true of the big and parts it's good it. to recognize early that there are a lot of talented people the difference between the talented people that people the gutters of the world, and there are some, with those that manage to make a living at their something they're passionate about, mm. you and I, very lucky, is you take the talent and then you are a good steward of this talent. You don't waste this talent. You take it not as something to be embarrassed or ashamed of because not everybody got it, but you take it and you go, it's a gift. I better not disrespect it. And from that, I mean, that is like an inner machine for discipline. Then I get past that and I get to the University of Texas, which at the time I was there was a very um, professional, capable uh, acting school. It was really good. And uh, you competed for everything in Texas. You competed at football. You competed at baseball. You competed at acting. They had In high school, they had 
interscholastic league where you literally went to speech contests and you, you fought it out for trophies by, you know, your interpretation of a Shakespeare speech or whatever. So I think uh, people ask me a lot, why are there so many actors from Texas? A, it's very big. B, there's a lot to express. It's kind of got its own character. You know, it was a republic. It was it and the Kingdom of Hawaii were the only states that were their own entities politically before they joined the Union. So there's a little of that Texas pride, and it covers such geography, you know, that people say, what's a Texas accent? And I'm from San Antonio. In San Antonio, a Texas accent is kind of like this, you know? Because they're muy mexicana, solo español. And then West Texas is their different kind of twang over and things are slow. And that's what everybody yeah. thinks is yeah. all of Texas. Well, it's just realize. varied. It's varied. It's like a, an English accent. It's a small country, but there's so accents. many different accents. Texas Playboy Rag. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Thank you. 
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to podcasts of Jazz Inspired on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. Additional support for Jazz Inspired is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. Today, my guest is actor Bruce McGill, who originally rose to fame in National Lampoon's Animal House, playing the character D-Day, who gave a memorable rendition of the William Tell Overture by drumming his fingers on his windpipe, a talent he's retained to this day, although I didn't ask him to prove it during this conversation. That initial comedic turn led to roles in film and television playing a wide variety of characters. Bruce is enormously grateful for his talent and feels those who are given this gift have to respect it and do the work that brings that talent to life. I would no more go out on a set or on a stage without preparing. I saw you split your finger from practicing. It's what you do because, yes, you're talented, great, but then you have to add the hotter the fire, the stronger the steel. And uh, I, I just was, it was competitive, but it was also, you know, I, got, I want to be as good as I can possibly be in these instances. And in a, you know, a, a movie that takes 12 weeks to shoot, you have a lot of time to prepare. The television series I did for seven years, Rizzoli and Isles, you're going like, I mean, you've got the pages, sometimes you get changes while you're shooting. And, and uh, you know, it, and it's not supposed to be improvisational, like the jazz world right, is. Right, right. But... You've got to get it, assimilate it, get it down, and spit it out like it's just the the natural thing for your character to say. Mm. And that's a lot of processing. And always, everything, everything that we do is made easier by your discipline and your chops. And you know, it's not it's not as apparent as an actor that like uh, you know glissades and stuff. Yeah, other than that. yeah, yeah. But it's a very but similar it's thing. There, and it's you have to have thing. that. And you develop not just your instrument, which is your body and your voice, but you develop your curiosity about interpretation. The thing I was saying earlier about famine, sword, and fire. You're looking always for real, tangible things that give it uh, a variety that it just makes it more listenable and makes it more delicious mm. for an audience. Because an audience, you can lose their attention in the in a split second if, if they they start to get bored and then they don't get picked up right away. You can lose them. And and it's very difficult to get them back. But if you keep it moving, and you know pace is important in the theater, and I, I believe pacing is very important in, in films. And a lot of times I'll see a film that I was in that I thought was great on the page, and it just drags because somebody, editor and director, or some combination in post, forgot about um, not just the, the pacing of it, but the varying tempos, you know, like the, this movement needs to be a little this way, and then this movement needs to run to get them back, and then, oh, we better take a little time with this, and then we'll run up again to the end. And they forget that in mm. the editing process. And, I mean, it's all part, you know, it's such a complex form. You've got all the stuff we do when we're shooting, and then you've got all the stuff they do in post, which is music, mm-hmm. hugely important. And uh, one director that I worked with that I love, 
Cameron Crowe is very, very musical. And when he's shooting a film, he has a, his laptop has got a bazillion songs on it. And he decides, and sometimes in conjunction with the actor, what song would you like to hear until, and he, he turns it on loud until action. And then he just cuts it out. And a lot of actors do this with headsets. They want to, they pick a song that, that is right for this character or this scene. But Cameron does it, and it puts the whole set in that place. And usually he decides. I mean, I said, you decide. It's your movie. And, uh, but then we, then he said, but well, let's talk about it. And I went, okay, let's talk about it. What did you decide? Oh, that's good, Cameron. Because he's the guy that's going to be there in post. Right. Putting it together. Do you like to do that? Do you like to listen to music? Have you got to choose well, no, that Well, no, I'm a little different. I don't like, I don't have headphones for anything, but when I'm, you know, if I'm Thinking listening. Thinking about for the part. Uh, well, when I'm listening to a, you know, if I'm on a phone interview or something to somebody and there's a noisy place, I'll put earbuds in. But what I do when I'm in the, during the shooting day is I always have an instrument. And if in my, if I'm at home or I'm on a long time on location, I'll have a guitar because I, I prefer the guitar because I like the, the bass notes. Mm. But I travel with now, and this is a recent acquisition and I love it, a baritone ukulele, which is like cheating because it's, it's, the fingering is the same as the last four strings on a guitar, the bottom four, the, the higher strings. But I can travel with it. I stick, I stick it in the overhead, and it's a really nice instrument. And if I travel with a travel guitar, it's always like a second-rate guitar. I don't care what they say. Martin Backpacker, no names. But, you know, they're, they're not really good guitars. This is a really good baritone ukulele. And it's soft and it's gentle. So what I do between takes, and you know, you're know, you there 12, 14, 16 hours a day. You're not acting every second because they have to move the lights, they have to move the cameras, but you're in your trailer, and I always go to my trailer. I don't hang out a lot. I mean, I may go to the craft service table for a cup of coffee or whatever, but I spend my time in my... I'm lucky enough now that I get a little dressing room that has everything I need in it. It's usually got a little refrigerator, and it's got a little bathroom, and I'll play my ukulele, or my guitar, and... Uh, Sometimes I'll do that while looking at the scene to make sure I know the lines so well I can play a song and, and do the lines at oh, the same time. Oh, that's interesting. Training. You're training the brain. And just automatically what happens there is whatever I feel like playing generally is right for the scene I'm about to shoot. Mm. It's just unconscious. Yeah, it's what you would and, choose. And, and oh, another thing that does, sometimes it's not even that related. Sometimes it's just a nonverbal way to stay in a performance mode. Nonverbal meaning non-literate, no words. That's what I was going to ask about. Yeah, because right. words. I mean, if you have a lot of dialogue, I don't. I mean, if I'm, if I'm doing nothing but background work, although sometimes you know, if you're a principal actor, sometimes you're not talking much in a scene. If I have a day like that, I'll read anything, anything that I'm finding interesting. But if I have a lot of lines, I play the guitar instrumental, and it keeps my performance motor idling, because it is there's something interpretive about that. However I played, and I play, you know, since I don't trade on it, I play whatever I play, however I want to play it at the time. And uh, so that keeps the motor running. Mm -hmm. And then when they, they say, okay, we're ready for you, I, my, my literal mind, my verbal mind, my word mind is uncluttered. But my performance motor is... You and I were talking a couple of days ago about enjoying a certain artistic endeavor that's not professional. And how important that is. And um, for me, it's non-artistic, although I think it's artistic. I play tennis and sports, and I know you love golf as well. And that's artistic if it's done well. 
but it takes us to a different place. It isn't something that in our case we're being paid to do. It's ours, ours alone, not being judged in some way. It's, it's something that we do. And I found that really interesting because you said you'd had a lot of people who had said to you when they'd hear you play, why don't you quote, do something with this, which I love that phrase, you do too. Something with your You're music. already doing <laughs> yeah. something. But that's very important to talk about that because I think now, especially with things like YouTube and American Idol and all these things, everybody's a star. Mm -hmm. Nobody's doing it just for the joy of being creative. Speak to that. Well, what people do, and they do often, say, oh, you, you play so well, you should do something with your music. And I say, what makes you think I don't? Check my credit card bills. You won't see a psychiatrist on there. Not that some people who play music don't need a psychiatrist. I'm not <laughs> saying that. But in my case, it's um, it's a it's a great and joyful thing that I've done forever. And the fact that I don't trade on it means I don't have to play requests. You know, I don't have to do a certain set list. I don't have to play when I don't feel like playing. And when I know I'm in trouble, and this hasn't happened in 30 or 40 years, when I can't even pick up the guitar and play the blues, I know I'm having a bad day. There you go. And uh, and there were days like that. It's a great like touchstone, that. I'm and, sure. And it really is. And I haven't had that since the early struggling days in New York when I didn't know how I was going to make this work. And sometimes I would go to bed with the guitar in my chest just playing. And, and sometimes I would try and I couldn't play because I was depressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a depression is not a big part of my life and hasn't been for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But in those days... What have I done? What am I doing? I'm so worthless because an actor that doesn't have a show or a job, it's easy to fall into self-loathing and a low sense of self-esteem. Same for musicians. Oh, of I course, think it's the same for course. any artist. But by not trading on music, not having to do it for money and not having to be judged in any marketplace for it, it is just pure fun and free. And it's awesome that I can do it to me. Sometimes it's funny. I'll start, I'll be playing and then I'll think about it fingering. As soon as I think about it, it goes away. It's you got. I got to be inside it to get my to really get off on it, you know. Mm, and mm -hmm. uh, and if there's and when I play with other musicians, sometimes you've got the big ears. You've got to listen and pay attention. And I have friends over the years that I've played with successfully. And when you do that, if you don't do it regularly, if you usually you play alone, and you try to play with people who really can't do it, and you realize there's never going to be any music that comes out of this, you don't want to tell them that. You, we can't play together. Why? Because you suck. You can't do that. <laughs> So you just make a make a note to self. Don't don't have a jam session with this guy again. That's funny. And, but a friend that that I played with a lot. It, God, it was joyful, and he was also a really great harmony singer. And uh, I don't have that gift. He was he was really good, and we would sing whatever we would sing, and uh, he would he would know when to add a little line of harmony and when not to harmonize. And meanwhile, we're both playing instruments, and boy, that was just. That was great stuff. And we were drinking tequila, which made it super great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Here's Memphis Slim, a favorite of my guest, actor Bruce McGill.
about Memphis Slim. Yeah, Memphis Slim was my, I, I started out playing classical piano, didn't like it, didn't want to do it. I like to listen to, well, Gershwin music was great. And then I heard Memphis Slim and I said, I got to figure out how to do that because I loved it. I loved the runs and I loved the, just that it had, it had the rhythm and it had the bass and it had the, you know, it just was great. So I listened to a lot of Memphis Slim and, and sort of copied him. And it was, uh, it was awesome. Still awesome. You mentioned somebody I wasn't familiar with. I'm not even going to pronounce it correctly. Mance? Mance Lipscomb. Yeah. Uh, I don't know this name. A Texas blues player. He was sort of like Mississippi John Hurt. Have you heard of him? Of course. In that he played a bass line with his thumb and a rhythm going and a lead on top of it all at the same time. And so that, when I started trying to do that, I realized when people say, oh, you're such a good guitar player, I go, thanks, but no, I am not. (laughs) This is a good guitar player.
My father, he was not musical at all. He loved that I played. He loved it. People say, oh, do you play? And he'd say, uh, yeah, I play the radio. So, but he loved that you oh, did, and that's just, the thing. So he out. was really he, he couldn't imagine supportive. How, yeah, he couldn't imagine how somebody could do that. Aww. And, uh, and, and I loved playing you know, for both of them until they passed away. And, uh, but I, I didn't get into that until I started out. I, I lived in San Antonio, so I learned a little flamenco right hand because that was pretty awesome to me. And then, uh, of course, there was the, the rock scene in the 60s. Right. Janis Joplin was around there, and uh, I started to listen to the stuff. And then I said, well, who, who did they listen to? Where did this three-chord stuff come from? And uh, that's when I got back into source music, which I call it. And, you know, jazz, jazz is such a broad term. But it all started with uh, blues, which started with church music. Charge started with, you know, the resolution of a, of a one four five hymn jazzed up by the slaves singing it in the fields is what became the, the Delta Blues and the Texas Blues. So it, it, it all goes back to that church music, don't it? <laughs> <laughs> you sound so authentic. It's just so wonderful. <laughs> I'm the real thing. You're man. the real thing. <laughs> I do classical as well, you know. You do. Theater. Uh, no, yes. No. But I did, I did, you know, and I, I, I learned to play classical guitar because I wanted to, to make use of my pinky on my fretting hand. I thought, this is, you know, I've got an extra finger there. Most of the guys that I would do play in sixths and ninths and, and even lead riffs, I would never use that little finger. You jazz players do. They go, you know, like, or I'm thinking the Jaco Pastorius, the bass No, guy. I love it because I'm watching God. your hand make oh, these chord figures. And so I, I forced myself to learn to read music on the guitar neck. And, uh, you know, piano was so easy because it's this octave, that octave, they're all the same. So I forced myself to learn to read music so I could play classical music so I could start to train that little pinky. And that made a huge difference in my mm. improvisational playing, which I suspected it would. And then I got lazy and quit because that's stuff you have to practice. The classical pieces that somebody actually wrote note for note, you got to practice that. You know, you can pretend like you're playing it. But, and again, I don't trade on it, so there's nobody in the audience writing for the local paper saying, he missed a note there. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a really indulgent musician, but it's, it's uh. met... Huge, huge, huge to my life. But you're having so much fun with it. I know so many amateur musicians who are happier than the professionals I know because the world is, the world, especially for jazz, it's just very difficult. It's very difficult. And the, the real challenge, I think, that people don't think about, and it's true with acting as well, I think, is to stay inspired and not get discouraged, to have those moments of, that you're discouraged, but to know, I always say, know the person you're going to call, <laughs> because it has to be a particular person. It can't just be anybody. You can't just be saying because they don't understand or something and say, I'm having one of those moments, and they talk you off the ledge. Right, yeah. And they keep you not just feeling good, but inspired to keep finding something new, which I'm curious for you, because I think, well, this is completely, this may be an ignorant thing to say. Because people always sort of the fantasy is being the lead actor. But I think when you're a character actor, you have so much that so much material that's juicy and interesting and different. Well, and you also have in, in the leading man category, in a, in a buddy picture, there's two. Most of the time, there's one. And the world of the character actor is vast. There's at least four or five decent parts that they they'll, might pay you to play. And my mission statement when I set out, because I actually love the process, I love the kind of storytelling you get with multiple people playing different roles in front of an audience. And that, that communal experience of the 
the playwright's imagination, what he was thinking of through the actors to the willing audience. There's an energy that's set up there that when it works, you get a super exciting theatrical experience. I'm thinking now of Hamilton, which is you can't do that in a movie. You would not get that in a movie. But I've always, I've always loved that. And uh, so when I started out and I realized, okay, I'm going to be a pro, this is going to be tough. To make in San Antonio, Texas, nobody in my family's in the business. How am I going to make a living doing this? And I was I would be would have been content with a relatively paltry living at that time because my passion was so great. And I thought, okay, what do you really want? And I said, okay, I want to do this at a high level for a very long time. And this is now I'm old, <laughs> and uh, and that's that's come to pass. I'm not done. I mean, I have stuff in the can, and I can't wait to find out what I do next. Mm. But I have done it at a high level for a very long time, which is uh, – I get that – and I don't even think about it that way, but I get that question a lot. How do you get a career like that? And uh, different answers to different people. Sometimes they answer their own question. If it's another actor – and I'm thinking of a very specific actress now, and she said, how do you get a career like that? And then she answered her own question. She said, you pass on the money, don't you? Yeah. And I went, yes, yeah, sometimes you do. Yeah, there's you just of, keep going. You well, keep... you keep going, and there's there's different reasons to take a part. There's, of course, when you have no money, money is important. But if, you, if you're comfortable, money is less important. The role is always important, which is also the material. Where does it shoot? Who am I going to work with? These things are, are what decide whether I say yes or whether I go on a crystal cruise, mm-hmm. which I love also, and I find that very enriching. Mm-hmm. And I learn stuff here. I mean, I learned a whole lot between Japan and and Sitka, Alaska. I mean, I really learned a lot. Right. Going ashore, going to the museums, and, and seeing the feeling the air, seeing the wildlife. Anyway, my uh, my ambition was never to be the guy on People magazine. In fact, I find that kind of fame not terrifying because I know what it is, but nothing that interests me, and it has a cost that I don't feel Huge like paying. Huge cost. It, it can have. If yeah. you're not really, really centered. Like I, in my first, I can't call them lectures, but my first presentation here I talked about Robert Redford, the amazing Robert Redford, who's been a major star for 50 years. And I mean a heartthrob major star for 50 years. And and how he's ridden that horse, uh, pretty amazing. Pretty uh, A guy I'm very fond of and I think a lot of. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is actor Bruce McGill. Bruce is also a musician and feels playing music feeds his creativity and gives him a wonderful respite from his acting work. Here's one of his favorite sources of inspiration, guitarist Django Reinhardt. Django. I translated that uh, little flamenco right hand I'd learned growing up in San Antonio, Texas, because he was basically a gypsy flamenco guitarist. But his, in a fire when he was a kid, his fretting hand, his left hand, was burned, and the two fingers, the ring finger and the pinky, were fused together. So he does a lot of sliding sixths and ninths, and he wasn't flamenco. He had a flamenco right hand, but when he started playing with the Hot Club of Paris, and he had to be heard, he went to a pick. So a lot of those super quicks went to a pick and uh, Django I could just listen to all the time because it was to me incredible musicianship and and fun and fast and and great and uh, and uh, I thought it was sexy <laughs> 
It is sexy. So much passion and everything. It's fantastic. way from talking to you, Mr. McGill, is your great passion and engagement in life. And I just love that. Another, um, um, do you know Blythe Danner? I, I, I knew her a long time ago. I don't know her well. She's a pal of mine. And she once, and one of the nicest things I ever had anyone say is she said that she loved that I attacked life. Eat it up. And I feel you attack life. Here's a great line for you from George Bernard Shaw. What is life but a series of inspired follies? The difficulty is to find them to do. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Thank you for you. And thank you for taking the time. And everybody go out and eat life. It's good. Just in case there's no reincarnation. Maybe, it's just, maybe there's only one run. <laughs> we better take advantage of it. Exactly. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to my conversation with actor Bruce McGill. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another celebrated creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidoff. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms or at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one, from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by Paige at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Paige at 63 Main at opentable.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stride Queen. For more information, visit judycarmichael.com or jazzinspired.com. <laughs>